You're listening to Look at My Records. This is episode 214, and I'm your host, Tom Gallo. For this edition of Look at My Records, I chatted with indie pop veteran Phil Sutton of Love Burns. You may be familiar with Sutton from his contributions to various bands of the guitar pop ilk over the last few decades, including the New York City-based Pale Lights and UK jangle pop legends Comet Game. But with the onset of the pandemic, Sutton shifted gears from his group efforts towards Love Burns, his first ever solo project. After releasing two seven-inch singles in 2020 and 2021, Sutton shared his debut full length as Love Burns. It should have been tomorrow in February of this year. The record is filled to the brim with the kind of gooey, ramshackle guitar jangle that Sutton has spent decades perfecting and includes standout tracks like Wired Eyes, his first stab at an affecting political tune with the guitar guitar pop twist. During our interview, we chatted all about the new record, including why he decided to go solo, the process behind piecing together the songs, his creative relationship with Kyle Forrester, and much more. Plus, Sutton shared stories about his DIY pop origins and comet gain, including what he remembers about the group's first John Peel sessions, playing with Bikini Kill in the mid-90s, and how comet gain passed powered through adversity to reach mythical status in indie rock circles. He also picked some awesome records, including a handful of choice cuts from Nicole Yoon, The Birds, and Look Blue Go Purple. Sutton and his backing band also recorded a special live session at Gary Olson's Marlboro Farm Studios for Look At My Records, so keep listening to hear Five live cuts from the band, including one never-before-heard tune. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look At My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms. Please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. I also encourage you to check out the Look At My Records website, where you can find reviews, premieres of new music, playlists, and a whole lot more, check it out at lookatmyrecords.com. Hello, Phil Sutton of Love Burns. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Tom. Uh, It's a lovely day. Looking out my window, so lovely. Beautiful, day. beautiful spring day here mm. in the mm. New York City area. Great day to talk about your awesome new album, your debut solo album as Love Burns. It should have Thank been you. tomorrow. Uh-huh. Really great 10 tracks on this record, which seem to have been percolating for a, a little while. But before we we get into the album, I know you have this very extensive background performing in indie pop bands, both in the UK and here in the States as well. But I was surprised to learn that you actually grew up in Germany until you were 10 years old, right? No, I was born in Germany. You were born in Germany? And and then when did you move to the UK? I was about two and a half. I probably got my biography wrong. 
<laughs> I, I think maybe I read that in an interview, but yeah, because yeah, yeah. I was like, you got an English accent. I think if you lived mm. in Germany until 10, yeah. you'd sound a little more German, probably. Yeah, I'd probably sound transatlantic. <laughs> but tell me a little bit about your first experiences with music. Did you play anything as a kid, and when did you first develop uh, an interest? I think like a lot of kids, you know, because I'm, I'm what you call a veteran of indie pop. Although you seem to be getting called a veteran after about five years <laughs> nowadays, but I'm, I'm definitely a veteran. And um, I, I guess it was just, you know, the 60s and the 70s, um, although I wasn't really cognizant of the 1960s. I was born in 68. Um, but just growing up in the 70s and 80s, pop music was, like, it was everywhere and it was dominant and it was, you know, the big thing and all, all the youth cultures, subcultures, things kids were into was all about pop music or rock music or heavy metal or whatever it is, you know, you got into. Um, I think, I don't know if that's to say it's quite as true now because, you know, you've got other things to preoccupy you. But yeah, so when I was a boy, I was just listening to, you know, Radio 1 in the, in the UK. And then just, I was really into my parents' records, all that kind of usual stuff. So a lot, a lot of 60s stuff because that's when my parents were, you know, buying records and then, or that kind of the great 80s chart pop music era of like Dexys, Midnight Runners, Specials, Altered Images, New Order, you know, all that kind of thing. Uh, so there was just a lot of good interest in pop music, I guess. And that, yeah, that's, that's what I really love. That's so interesting to me, too, because I found sort of the same thing <clears throat> with me is mm. that I was so exposed to my parents' record collection as a kid, which was that kind of 60s pop psychedelic stuff. And then you kind of go through other phases, but now as a fully formed adult, those are the sounds I appreciate the most, I'd say, yeah. that I look for in music. I think there's just, just too much an emotional investment, you know. I mean, I, I still like I still like the Seekers, who are not, you know, who are like real middle-of-the-road stuff. But, you know, when, it, when, you, when you had it bombarded at you when you were a kid, you kind of, it sticks in your brain a little bit and you feel a bit, you know, there's all that nostalgia but, you know, if I was DJing, I probably wouldn't play, you know, Georgie Girl or something like that. But, <laughs> but it, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe not New York. Um, but, um, yeah, but we weren't really a musical household. Um, and I, I didn't really do any music until I got into my 20s. And that was because I was pretty much, you know, forced into it. Yeah, I love the kind of origin story of Comet Gain, one of yeah. the several bands that you were in. Mm. when you lived in the UK, you just kind of decided to play drums for Comic Man yeah. because well, no, you, no. <laughs> you were like flatmates. With, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that because from reading about it, it seems like you kind of fell into Comet Gain for everybody listening, this great uh, UK indie pop band that is still active. Yeah, we, we, we kind of, um, yeah, I forget... I mean, I, I loved indie pop. I met David, the singer, at um, a BMX Bandits show in Oxford. And um, and I kind of was really into music at that point in my life. It was all I was into. I dropped out of art school. And I'd gone to art school with with um, members of Ride, the shoegaze band. Yeah. And so I, we, we kind of got started going down to London from where I lived. Because originally I lived in Banbury which is in Oxfordshire, and then, then I moved to Oxford and gradually, you know, you made my way to London 
But while I was in Oxford, I met, you know, I was friends with David, and David was friends with people like Amelia Fletcher and Greg Webster of the Razor Cuts and, and all that kind of heavenly Tallulah Gosh crowd. And then there was this whole scene going on where bands were getting signed and getting in the charts, like Ride and uh, obviously Radiohead and Swerve Driver. Uh, but Comic Games started. We were definitely influenced. We could not play at all. We were, I think I think a local journalist said we were the worst band in Oxford or something, <laughs> which I thought was a bit harsh because the Oxford scene was very you know very lively at that point, so it wasn't difficult. But um, yeah, uh, David just like he was he was friends with Huggy Bear, the Riot Girl band, and and a bunch of because he was originally from London. He somehow ended up in in Oxford for reasons we don't know about. And um, yeah, and and but he just asked me. He was playing this lo-fi kind of stuff, influenced by Riot Girl and underground pop and all that kind of stuff that was going. And and he just wanted someone to play a drum beat, so I played a drum beat using, uh, I think, paintbrushes on a yellow pages or something like that. Just just or a box. And I think some of that's actually been released now, which is which is shocking. <laughs> but um, but there's, I think there's one or two. Very lo-fi recordings, but that was kind of what was going on in the nineties as well. You know, there was like in Britain, there was like shoegaze and Britpop, and that was getting all the press. But there was a lot of underground, noisy, scrunky stuff that was kind of, you know, anything between sort of twee sound and and right through to really punky, kind of Camden Lurch stuff as well. So we, I think we we kind of somehow ended up slotting into that. But yeah, David kind of, I think I almost feel like he kidnapped people. <laughs> and brought them into the band. I remember when Sarah, who was the the, the first um, one of the, in the first lineup, she was a, the female singer, and and um, I I remember I was just stood outside my room, which was next to David's room, and he kind of and I was like, oh hello, who's this? And he went and he kind of like pushed her into his room and closed the door, and I could hear them practicing, but he kept everything very separate. And when we first played a show, we were actually meeting people on stage. So I met Sam, who was the guitarist. And, <laughs> and um, you know, which was kind of weird. And, we, and, and David was like, okay. And we were playing with um, kind of bands from that time. That, um, now I forget all, <laughs> I've forgotten all their names. You get to a point in time. Uh, but we used to play a lot with Corner Shop and um, Mambo Taxi and these bands are probably not familiar to a lot of people. Um, anyway, we played this show and Huggy Bear as well, and people like that, and lots of these other little little bands. And um, yeah, we hadn't met. And David said, "We're going to do a Dex's cover now," and he's just like, "You'll know this one, right?" And I went, "No." <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what the tempo was. I didn't know anything. Um, so we just, but we just, we somehow made a terrible racket, but we ended up getting signed somehow. Yeah, tell me a little bit about how Comet Gain, everything in the beginning sounds so casual about it. Just friends having yeah. fun, not even meeting band members. But then at some point, it seems like things did get a little more serious. You started getting recognition, you got signed, you played a couple of John Peel sessions as yeah. well. When did you start to notice that, oh, this is becoming a little more I of a serious thing? I think after we'd um, we, we, we'd recorded our LP, because we did an EP, um, uh, and which is like Holloway Sweethearts, which was a four-track, seven-inch, which was a bit ramshackle, but there was a couple of good songs on it. And I think we realized that David and Sarah and Sam, who were the two songwriting groups, they could, they could actually write 
you know, some songs, even though we were terrible musicians. Well, apart from Sam, Sam was a very good guitarist. <laughs> we were pretty bad musicians and we didn't practice enough. And I think we practiced once for the LP, which was about 14 songs or something, which is insane. And most of my contemporaries were like worried about us going into the studio because they were like, how the hell are they going to make an album? But somehow we did. And the label was really relieved, Ouija Records, and, and it was good and catchy and it got some nice reviews. And we, yeah, and we got, we ended up doing a peel session as a result of that, which was terrifying, I seem to remember. Because we, we got there, the, the, the studio engineer, the guy producing it, was like, okay, guys, so, you know, we could hear him over the. Because the, the, we were in the BBC and made a veil, which was terrifying for a band that usually, yeah. usually didn't even rehearse in rehearsal rooms. We usually rehearsed in each other's bedrooms and things like that. Still, me still playing the Yellow Pages, didn't have a drum kit. And um, so we, we got asked to do a peel session. We go to Made of Ale and we're in the big room, which is really scary. And this is where orchestras and whatnot were. And um, and I, I was virtually in a, in a state of panic attack all day. I was just freaking out, and uh, which isn't good for the drummer. But um, I remember the guy that he was, we all had headphones on, which was something we weren't used to. And he's, and, and the recording engineer was like, okay guys. So, right. So let's, let's, let's run through a number just to get a, the levels and then we play. And then he stops it. All right. Okay. So could you tune up? And, and so we were like, Oh, we better. Ch-. So we were trying to tune up and then we started playing again. He went, you're still not in tune. And then <laughs> this, this just kept going on and on to a point where it was like, I think he thought these guys, they're never going to be in tune. So, but he was, a, I mean, whoever he was, he was a genius because it, it ended up sounding pretty yeah. good. Those, people, those BBC sessions are really, you know, it's like suddenly this crappy little garage band is suddenly in the same studio that Frank Sinatra uses. It's just a bit, <laughs> it's very odd, but those Peel sessions are always really good recording. That's amazing. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're good. They're <laughs> definitely good. And it's cool to, that you got to be able to do that. Yeah, I think that's stuff's coming out, actually. I, I heard rumors of, Comic Gain, um, one and Mark one and Mark two Peel sessions and evening sessions might be coming out on an LP. Really exciting! I, I hope so. Yeah, so I might get some money. So <laughs> I won't get any money. <laughs> I was also reading that Comic Gain played a pretty memorable gig opening for Bikini Kill. What year was that, and what do you oh remember my God. about that, it? That, uh, that was our second ever show. We played with Bikini Kill two or three times. Because um, although we were kind of twee punk noise mess, uh, Northern Soul we used to hear a lot. Uh, w- you know, we we were definitely affiliated with with those kind of groups, and um, and I think David knew Bikini Kill somehow. I think he knew um, Toby and Kathy and people like that. Uh, but they asked us to play open for them in Oxford, and um, that was like the first time we like. You know, for some reason, the first show we ever played it, it was well, the first couple of shows we played were a ramshackle mess, but it didn't matter. And we were improvising and everyone else was doing that. When we played with Bikini Kill, somebody back in Oxford and the pressure's on us <laughs> and, uh, and everyone seemed, and Bikini Kill seemed extraordinarily competent musicians to me. And so it was kind of terrifying. We went out and the, the sound man was just like, what the hell is this? He just like, and that's when we got our worst band in Oxford thing and we were playing songs and we couldn't remember what we were playing and i i just suddenly lost it and i was hiding behind my drum kit and then uh and it, it was a mess and but somehow it, we got away with it and we got a good review the local paper said something like in music i only like the the, the only things that are interesting are the very worst and the very best i'll <laughs> leave it up to you to decide what comic gainer and um 
but we weren't we weren't renowned for our live chops. But I remember David and and Kathy singing a song together, a duet, um, and it was fun. But the next time we turned up to play at the same venue, supporting the Pastels, um, very cool. Yeah, we were. Yeah, I think we we were. The, the, the Sandman wouldn't have checkers because he hated us so much. <laughs> and uh, the Pastels and I. You know, they, they liked Stephen Pastel. I think he's, he's still a big comic game fan. But for some reason, they liked us. They saw something in us. And um, they were sharing their uh, their rider with us. So the, uh, the, the sad man just came up and took it away from us. and went, no, it's for the headline band. <laughs> you know? So it was like, <laughs> and then there was another show, and we turned up, and we were just told we couldn't play. So. <laughs> but we, we came back. There's a great story about how we came back to Oxford a couple of years later, and, and we we were incredibly successful and loved. How do you deal (laughs) with that kind of like (laughs) adversity? Because it seems cool that you (laughs) as a musician, not knowing how to play drums at first during your initial run with this band, you you know, you've really grown over the last 30 years into being able to be a good songwriter and, you know, playing guitar and things like that. Despite, you know, I feel like, I feel like the the Brits have a thicker skin for stuff like that. Whereas, like if yeah. something like that happened to me, and I was in a band, and someone said the worst band in New Jersey, I'd probably like quit outright yeah, then and yeah. there. But it's cool that you you were able <laughs> to kind of take that in stride and use it to con- to continue to make music. Well, I thought I I just think it thought it meant we had something. Yeah, <laughs> you know, even if it was very bad, but uh, I don't know. But it wasn't like we were the worst band in Oxford because our songs were rubbish. It was we were, they were just the worst musicians yeah. in Oxford. And I think you know, I don't know why it was. It was Huggy Bear and, and Bikini Kill were very inspiring. You yeah, know, they, they, they inspired a lot of us because maybe less Bikini Kill because they seemed very you know they they were really solid kind of punk band. But, but Huggy Bear were just like let let's just do this and get on stage, we got something to say. And um, I, I think it goes back to Orange Juice and the go-betweens yeah. and people like that. You know, the go-betweens used to talk about growing up in public, although I still feel that they were better musicians than us when they started. And um, and then there's that whole Edward College thing. I, I can never quite remember the quote, but it's something like we were young and, you know, we, we jumped on the stage even though we had nothing to say or something yeah. like that. And, and it's that kind of, I think it just seemed acceptable to, to you know, and but you didn't think about making a record, but David did. We didn't. We we just thought this is a bit of a laugh, and then, and then he was like, he wouldn't tell us what was happening. And suddenly it was like we're in the studio. Oh, we've got a show opening for so. We were like, what? 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 All right, okay. So you know, shouldn't we practice? Nah, <laughs> I, I, I want it to be fresh. You know, it's like, which is a kind of Dan Tracy from the TVPs. That's that's you know, I've known people who played with the TVPs, and they were kind of television personalities. Television right? personalities. Yes. So. Yeah, so that was a, listening, yes. Yeah, I've given my age away, but that, that was a real thing. <laughs> you know, this kind of like, if you practice too much, it destroys, it ruins it, you know. Which, I mean, Robert Smith of The Cure said that. He doesn't practice his guitar every day because it's, he doesn't want to get too good. Which yeah. is easy for him to say, you know, playing stadiums. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also interested about during those formative years for you musically, you know, during the 80s and 90s, and you kind of alluded to it, the UK especially, really varied sub-scenes of guitar music, you know, punk, the uh, Manchester scene uh, that centered around the Hacienda, Britpop, shoegaze, yeah. even like goth-sounding stuff. And of course, 
the music that you're known for playing, this kind of jangly guitar pop. Mm. What drew you to that sound as opposed to maybe some of the other sub scenes that were happening in the UK during that time period? I think it's because everyone in Banbury, where I lived, it seemed like everybody was a goth. Um, so I couldn't be a goth. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 you know, I just didn't, what it was was I lived in a really, really small village and there was nothing going on. And I didn't feel, this is like for a lot of people, I didn't really feel a connection with, with anything going on. I wasn't really into Duran Duran or nothing against Duran Duran, but, you know, or, or, living in a box or whatever was in the charts at the time. And I was a big Smiths fan for a while because uh, I was like, oh, I like this. And I kind of, I think growing up with my parents' 60s music to a degree made meant that jangly guitars was something I liked. Yeah. And I heard this list and I thought, this is my jangly guitars. Because my, my parents would be like, what? What is that? Is that singing? You know, kind of thing. And this songs are so depressing. And I went, yes, it's great. I'm 14. I'm going <laughs> to revel in this depression. And, and Morrissey is my hero, which is just you know, why I think why so many people are so obsessed with his, his kind of downfall. You know, so many people are so upset is just because, you know, he did mean a lot to a lot of people. Yeah. But then I, they were the gateway band. And I started listening to John Peel and the Janice Long show on the radio. And this, was, this would have been, you know, I'm still at home with my parents. And this would have been like 86, 87, 88. And it just seemed there was an explosion in... You know, I remember John Peel, Janice Long had the early evening show and she'd hand over to John Peel about the late show. And they were just, I remember one time they were going, there's all these new bands coming out. There's just so many new bands all of a sudden. It was the whole like C86 explosion. Yeah. And um, But there's loads of stuff going on, you know, because Shoegaze came along about 88, 89, I think, influenced by, you know, My Bloody Valentine, who I still don't think of as Shoegaze. But um, because, you know, I knew them when they were twee and, and all that. But then, you know, and that was just indie bands doing the same thing, but they just had pedals, from what I could tell. Yeah. And I, I went to ask them with Ride and they were very into, you know, My Bloody Valentine, extremely into them. But they were into the House of Love, but they were into Orange Juice and all the C86 sounds as well and the 60s pop. Uh, but they just, you know, came up with their own kind of sounds. And then, yeah, Baggy was before, I remember... I bought the Stone Roses album when it came out on cassette because I used to buy everything on tape. I remember speaking to Andy Bell, the guitarist in Ride, and we were both like really excited by this album and how incredible it was. And so the Stone Roses were kind of yeah. a big influence on Ride for a while, I know. And then, um, and then they blew up and they were everywhere. So you got kind of tired of them. And then I, I, I think, and then you know, and then I moved to London, and then it, that was when I discovered this whole underground pop. Influenced a lot by American punk bands, by the K bands and things like that, and Riot Girl. But I think it all fed into each other. It seemed to just to me because I, you know, weirdly happened to have gone to art school with this with, with a band that went on to become, you know, pretty successful and like are still liked today. Um, so you kind of see this, and then I moved to London and I ended up. I had this parallel life where I was associating with bands that were successful compared to all these little scronky indie bands that became cults. And um, uh, through through an old girlfriend, I got a job doing the merchandising for Elastica. Wow, cool. Um, so I kind of see that Britpop thing going on, taking off out of the new wave of new wave. This is nearly all, all this stuff was created by journalists. Yeah. You know? <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, it was it was nearly all just indie kids playing playing indie pop music their own way or, or indie rock their own way or whatever it was. And it wasn't even really called that. It was just 
it was just like post-punk, I think, what everyone thought of it. Post-punk, C86, all that stuff that had come before was influencing, you know, people who were two or three years younger. Um, but yeah, and and so Britpop seemed to me when it kind of nosedived a little bit, because there's some good stuff came out of that, but there's, it was just when it really became about the business and hitting the charts, and, yeah. you know, with Oasis and that, and... So that, I think a lot of people were getting solace in the underground scene in Sarah Records and, you know, all, all of those kind of sounds that were getting chastised, not just, yeah, maybe chastised this Sunday, you know, that were getting slagged in the newspapers, you know, yeah. by the enemy and things like that for not having chart hits. And there were a few journalists that were very, you know, pro the kind of more experimental side of things. But I mean, we, Comic Gain, that said, we thought we were writing hit records. Totally. <laughs> you totally were. Yeah. I think the highest chart placement we ever got was probably uh, it was probably Veloset who came after Comic Gain, who I think got to 198 in the charts or something. Awesome. Although we get in the indie charts, you know. But, but. Tell me, let's fast forward a little bit. When did you originally come to the United States and what brought you here? I came here to see a friend in 2003. And it, um, I know it was Mother's Day and she had to go and see her mum. And so I just spoke to somebody who I knew worked at the American branch of the label Comic Game Run. We went out for coffee and we fell in love. And we... Oh, beautiful. Not the, not the same night. Not the same night. <laughs> I, when my wife met me, I was actually drunk and I was I kept going on about Jacques Dutronc and how gorgeous he was. And my wife was like, oh, great, he's gay. And I was like, you know. <laughs> I wasn't. I was just, I'd been watching The Thin Man. And for some reason, I got drunk watching The Thin Man. I was like, this is great. I need a drink. This, this film is amazing. You know The Thin Man from the... Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so anyway, we, 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 you know, we, we did that thing I wouldn't recommend of having a transatlantic relationship, which is mostly by phone, email, and the occasional trip over. But then we got married and I immigrated in 2007 um, and started a band as soon as I could with people that I'd met through a band I had called Kicker who were um, the first band where I, I started writing the songs for. And that, they came after, so I was in Comic Gain, and then I was at Comic Gain split in two, and there was a band called Velocet, and, and they were a really good pop group. Um, but I left them quite quickly and started my own group. We signed to a label called Track and Field, which was in London. And, um, and my wife came to see us play with Beachwood Sparks and the Cleontel. And we're getting into the O's now, all that scene. Yeah, and uh, and Comic Gain because she liked Comic Gain a lot. Um, and she really liked Kicker, and she spoke to our singer, and then she bought a record, and we we just ended. We met that way. Um, and when I emigrated in, I I knew I knew a handful of people. I knew Kevin Pedersen, who runs what's your what's your rupture because he's a big Comic Gain fan. Yeah, and I knew Gary Olson from Ladybug, and and I knew Andy from Crystal Stills, who's who's now in who was then in Pale Lights, my other group, and. Um, yeah, and I was like, I've got to start a band really quickly because it's the best way for an introvert to meet, you know, people. <laughs> so I did that. And that was, you know, a band called The Soft City, which I had with uh, Jason Karechi and uh, uh, and Dora Lubin, who's a singer, along with Kyle Forrester, who's been in my musical life ever since. Yes, the great Kyle Forrester. Oh, yeah. What I'm curious about is you've mentioned that you didn't really pick up a guitar and start writing music until you were in your 30s yeah. what made you finally want to start writing 
your own songs? It started after I left Velocet, or rather I was asked to leave Velocet. And, um, and then I, and I was kind of depressed about that a bit, uh, even though I knew I wasn't really a good enough drummer for that group. And then somebody said, you've got a, a, a mutual friend of my then girlfriend, Jill, who was also the singer, ended up the singer and kicker. It just said, you've got enough you've got enough CDs. This is like such a 90s O's thing to say. You've got enough CDs. You just start writing your own songs. And I went, <laughs> I can't play an instrument. I can only play the drums because I got, I got better at the drums by that point. And, uh, and he said, well, just sing it. Sing it to someone. They'll work the chords out. And that's, so that's what we did for the whole of the first five wow. singles. I would just, I, I'd be at work. Um, I'd worked in this place called the Vintage Magazine Company, which sold film memorabilia and had that's a whole other story, but David from Comic Game worked there. James Johnson from Gallon Drunk and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds worked there. And, uh, so it's a real kind of dropout place. And um, so I'd run into the bathroom and I'd get an idea for a song. So I'd run into the bathroom and record it on a little dictaphone so I could remember it. And then I go to rehearsal, I got a new song and I'd be playing the drums. I'd be going, and the guitarist would just be looking at me like, all right, what's that? But I think that's an A you're singing. You know, then we just. <laughs> and we grind it out like that. And at some point I thought, I can't keep doing this to them. You know, I've got to, uh... so I got an acoustic and just started learning chords. And that was that. For, you know, wow. Yeah. It was a bizarre <laughs> way. Because we, we got the first song we wrote, which we didn't realize sounded like um, a Brenton Wood song. Um, Give me a little more time. Um, but we didn't realize because we'd never heard it. But we wrote this song that was super catchy and it got played on John Peel and, People like going, when are you going to get signed? And was going, I don't know. I don't. We, we need to write some more songs. <laughs> so you know, we didn't really have any. And um, I'm wandering off. I'm turning into Grandpa Simpson now. I'm kind of wandering off the off the beat a little bit. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, stories, yeah. So I got to. I, we, we were on this label called Track of Food, which was a lot of fun with a lot of really good bands, uh, including the, the clientele. were probably probably the best known, but um, yeah, there's a band called Saloon. Were very good. Um, Simon Love and the Loves were on that group label. Uh, lots of good groups. I forget now. But so we, we played a lot and made some records, and then that group kind of ended when I immig- immigrated to the US. And yeah, it's just because I keep moving, so I have to start a new group. Well, people move. You came to, yeah, yeah. You came to the US. You you formed one band that then broke up, and then you formed Pale Lights. Mm. Great band has put out two full lengths and EP and a bunch of singles as mm-hmm. well. So kind of like transitioning to Love Burns, which I was curious about the reasoning behind starting a separate solo project and the origins yeah. of Love Burns, because you're the principal songwriter of Pale Lights. So why did you want to start Love Burns instead of maybe just bringing these songs to a group like Pale Lights? Because these were mostly songs that got that didn't work with Pale Lights um, for whatever reason. You know, when you're in a group, there's a dynamic and yeah. some songs work and don't work. And um, and I was just writing a lot, you know, of songs. Yeah. I, I write, I come, I come up with melodies every day. I've got, I think I've got hundreds of songs that, that have no words. The trouble is writing words is much harder. Um, but I, I, yeah, so I just started making some demos with Kyle, um, and then, um, but really, I was focusing on Pale Lights most of the time. They, they'd get yeah. the best material, but um, it just then COVID happened, 
it's and Pale Lights isn't the sort of band that can record remotely. Um, yeah. We need to be in the room together. And so I, I just I wanted to keep doing stuff. And so I thought, oh, I'll look at all those solo things that I demoed with Gary. And so originally I played the drums on it, and the drums were too messy. So Hampus, Oman um, Froland, who's a really good drummer, he, he, he just added some drums. We recorded a few extra tracks and just working on it remotely. I bought a microphone and taught myself how to record my vocals. Um, Gary would take the terrible results and somehow make them all listenable. Um, so we did everything remotely, really, and and um, and they just ended up with a record, and it was we thought this is, I thought this is quite good, um, and then I played it to Ronnie at KUS, and he really liked it. Um, um, he said he pressed the vinyl, and then I, I I think I wanted to put something out on an American label as well because I knew with COVID I thought we never bands will never play live again. You know, it felt like that, and um, yeah. So I asked Chris at Jigsaw if he'd like to put out the CD, and he ended up putting out co-releasing the vinyl, and then um, you know Nathan at Austin Town Hall, Nathan Langford just said, "Can I?" He, he I asked him if he wanted to release it, and he said he put out the tape because he was having, I think, because the vinyl was such a such a problem you know getting stuff pressed yeah. now um and it got delayed by months and months it was supposed to come out in april last year oh hang on. no i forget now i don't know what year it is anymore but <laughs> 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 it was eight months late anyway um and we, we we played some outdoor shows um through new colossus you know, yeah that uh, were being organized last year that were a lot of fun and i was like oh we can play live again now um yeah but that that was that was the, you know you asked one question I gave you the history. Um, That's good yeah, yeah. though. Love to hear the history. Yeah, yeah. But one specific thing that I was curious about and wanted wanted to ask you about was before you put out the two seven inch uh, singles mm. in late 2020 and April 2021. You put out this demo collection, 50th and Marlboro, mm. which has songs that appear on the album it should have been tomorrow like um this demo collection includes in a long time mm. and something good and the i guess the little bandcamp liner notes uh says that some of these demos date back to like 2013 I think. yeah so were you conscious of okay this is something I'm working on that's going to be a separate project as far back as 2013, or you were just like, I like this song. It's not going to work with the band Pale Lights, so let me demo it and see what I'll do with it later. When do you think the idea of this solo project like came to fruition in your head? I think it was a few years ago, because Gary was talking a lot about you know doing a solo album, and he's, he's obviously been and done that now, but I think it and yep. Gary Olson, and then uh, which is very good, um, and so I think I was toying with the idea because I just had all these leftover songs, and I thought oh, I should just put something yeah. out. But I didn't, and then I just forgot about it because you know Pale Lights was 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 busy, busy, you know? yeah. Um, and then it just came together, and then I wrote those two songs for the single. Um, um, what's it called? Gate and the Ghost and. And it's a shame. Um, I was just playing them, and my wife was like, "Oh, those are really good. You should, you should do something with them." Um, so I, you know, I was like, "All right, I'll do something." And um, 
And I got in touch with Ronnie and I sent him them and I said, you know, would you put this out as a seven inch single, Ronnie in Germany at KUS? And, and he was really enthusiastic about them. And he asked if I'd, uh, if there was an album. And so we just scraped everything together and, and, and it came out as an album. And then we thought, oh, we should really try and play some shows. Um, it just kind of happened by accident. And I put out the demos thing and the single. I think I put the demo thing out first because I just kept assuming, and I always do, that every record I've done is the last one I'll be allowed to do. So, because you, you, you just don't, I don't assume, I'm working on my new LP, I don't know when it'll come out. So, I, you know, now I'm like, I'm a, I'll write a song and then I'll go, I wonder if this will be finished. You know, I'm sure a lot of songwriters have that. I wonder if I'll ever do anything with this or will I hate it in two weeks or, you know, and I start feeling protective towards them. Um, it's kind of bizarre, but I think other songwriters probably understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Do you have a lot of unfinished demos or unfinished ideas, or do you find yourself really revisiting everything and finishing everything that you come up with? Well, I think when you get to a point when you've been doing it for enough time that you, you'll be going through some old demos and they're going, oh, this is good. Well, you know, why did I? Or you'll, or you'll just have a half an idea and, you, and then you'll have an idea to finish it up. Yeah. So I think, yeah, if you're like 17 and you're writing songs, you probably don't have that. But when, you, when you're middle-aged, it's definitely, you've got all this stuff. And you're like, it's kind of good, actually, because I feel like now isn't, when I make, when I've been recording, it, it, I've got so much backlog that it's like, I, I can just, like, I've written eight songs, but there's no single. Or I've written eight songs and there's no good slow ones. And, and I just go back to the library of crap. You know, it's stuff that is unreleasable. You know, yeah. it'd be the worst box set in history. But it's um, there's all these half-formed ideas that are in the bank, and so that so that's why it kind of it, it becomes more of this. Um, oh, I can't think of the word. It's just this process that, that that kind of builds and builds over the years. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So diving into it should have been tomorrow specifically. A lot of great songs on this record. Wired Eyes and Drive Down to D.C. Uh, Wired Eyes appeared on a 7-inch uh, that you released in 2021. Uh, but those two songs are two that stood out to me because I think you get specifically political in the subject yeah. matter of both of them. So I was curious, tell us a little bit about how those two tracks came together and what inspired them. I just wanted to write a political song because it's, it's something I wouldn't dare have ever done. And I still feel anxious about it now because it's, you know, you don't want to be preachy. You don't want to be a smart ass, you know, but it's like, yeah. I just felt like I am ranting all the time at the TV news, at yes. Trump, at all yeah. this stuff. And it's like, can't I try and at least turn this energy into something? So I, I, I'm a little embarrassed by those songs, but they're, they're from the heart. And I remember years ago talking to this, this guy, Jeff Green, who was in a band called The Butterflies of Love. That we we used to play shows with um and uh he was always like you know about very into sincerity in music and, and i thought well these songs are sincere at least you know yeah. they're not too clumsy and i mean what i'm singing and um and so i tried to write some songs that are a little that, that were a little more personal a little bit more political but not you know i'm not billy bragg so that so i tried to hide it behind you know some lovely playing by the, the guest guitarists and, you know, and, uh, or write a garagey song, you know, which is, as long as it's got a good beat and a good tune, you can sneak, sneak these lyrics in. But it's, you know, it's very hard writing political lyrics that, that aren't, you know, because you've got to kind of lay it all out there, but at the same time not be self-indulgent or like 
Bono or something, you know. What I liked about Wired Eyes was it's probably some of the, you know, bleakest lyrics on the record. You know, definitely yeah. specifically references the Sandy Hook tragedy, yeah. which was obviously a devastating event. But sonically, it's probably like the brightest sounding track on the record, I think, with the guitars and stuff like mm. that. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the thing about indie pop is it's like, you know, happy music with with, with sad lyrics. Um, but um, I felt it had to be garagey. I don't know why. And, and it's as near as I've managed to get to a, you know, garage rock sound. Uh, that's why I asked, um, I was thinking of Gene Clark, actually, Gene Clark kind of 66 period. So I asked Ben Phillipson, who's a guitarist and kicker and comic gain, because we were doing everything remotely. Um, and he's like the, the best folk guitarist I know probably. And, um, he was, who also plays indie pop. And, um, I just said, can you make it sound like kind of Gene Clark, 1966, you know, just after he left the birds, but before he got more country, it's this kind of folk rock garage thing we were going for. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to write something about, you know, that was kind of dismissive and cursy and, you know. I say bastards on it, which is yeah. not not really a curse word here. But, and, um, but it's funny because in the lyrics, I went, I, I said uh, something about mission creeps, the mission creeps, because I was reading yeah. about the NRA and how they'd, you know, how they slowly changed tack. You know, they were all for like, you know, they were obviously terrified of in the sixties of African Americans having yeah. guns, and then. But they were, and, and, but they were like this twee kind of club that was all about, you know, gun safety. And then they gradually turned into this, you know, this this pro gun monster um, that you know kind of infected the minds of so many people. And uh, and I just thought about how that was mission creep. But before then, I had I couldn't fill it up, so I, had this, I saved the space with Jesus freaks, and because um, it fitted. And then I was like, and then Gary was like, no, Jesus freaks are kind of hippie Christians. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're not gun toting people. And I went, oh, right, okay. Oh, it's such a good line. And it, it took me ages to write that. Uh, anyway, that's too much information. But um, good info. Yeah, man. there's there's three political songs on on the record. There's one about uh, 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 about the environment, which I tried to write a little bit as well. Which again, I hide behind a kind of garagey song. What I another song I really liked, going right along from Wired mm. Eyes, Drive Down to DC, which are tracks yeah. eight and nine. Something Good was another track I really liked. I enjoyed the mix of jangle and that lead guitar on yeah. the song. It kind of has a very dark, surfy vibe to it, which I feel like that kind of lead part isn't something you'd hear on many of your songs. So I really enjoyed it. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that song and why you think the sound of that one came out a bit differently. I don't know. That, that was, um, that started as a pale light song. Um, we did that with another song and the, the one song worked and that one, it kind of, I think we just forgot about it to be honest. I don't, I don't think it didn't work because it's a very simple song. Um, but that's that 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 song's about. Well, I'll leave it up to the listener. But I know what that song's about. <laughs> but, uh, it, it's about shunning a small time, small town existence, which is every other song I write. Um, and, and but how did the guitar come about? I can't remember. I think I, I just asked Kyle to do it. Oh no, no, I know what I did. I was I because I, I started doing the, the demos remotely, and I just sent. I said, Kyle, did you want to just play some guitar over this and see? see what happens. And I think he was in a twangy mood and, uh, I might be wrong. You'd have to ask Carl Forrester about that, but 
and and so we did it on the demo and it sounded great and then we and then we had to redo it and it took a little bit of kind of getting back to uh and kyle got it just right and it really that song's about the lead guitar yeah that's such a great lead guitar otherwise it's yeah it's it's amazing and and now you know and now when we play live kenny kenny worked out who's played with great lakes he's uh he's the kind of he plays a lot of the live guitar because kyle is very busy um and so you know he's he's having fun and and he asked i forget what what key it's in i think it's in e and uh, he he said Kyle, how do I play this part? You know, and and Kyle says something along the lines of, "Oh, you just mess around in here." <laughs> but that was his entire instruction. And Kenny does it very, very well. He has his own sound going on as well. So that's why I'm, that's that's uh, why we did it in the session because we wanted I wanted Kenny's lead that's to uh, to have a go, and Kyle actually played keyboards in the session. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Kyle Forrester and Gary Olson, Gary Olson, who recorded this, and Kyle Forrester, who's contribute a lot of you know keys and mm. guitar to to these songs what's your creative relationship like with the both of them and what were there as far as what did their how did they kind of shape the sound of this this record would you say um i like working with like i started working with gary because i knew he had a studio and he's the only person i knew in new york yeah because i you know my old band kicker had played with ladybug years before in in london and um and i forget i think i was starting this group the soft city with jason karachi and dora and and he got kyle in to play bass because we couldn't find a bass player and so he played bass we recorded an album really quickly that came out and kind of disappeared and i have i still have dozens of copies of it on cd by the way um and uh, and then, and for that, it was such a pleasant experience because I've always been intimidated by studios. And at this point, I'm writing songs, but I'm still playing the drums, and I'm not, I'm yeah. not singing. I, I'd done some demos, right? So, um, and I just kind of, but that group, we we did a couple of things. We never really, we always struggled to find a bass player. We found a bass player in the end, and then Lisa and Andy started playing with us when Jason he got tenure at a college in Baltimore, so he moved away, and then Dora got a job in 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 Massachusetts, so she moved away. And then it, it just, we kind of mutated into pale lights after that. But Kyle and Gary have always been there, to be honest. I like I love recording with with Gary because it's so easy going, and you know you get there, you have your cup of coffee, and we all kind of know each other. We have this, so I, I can just say, you know, I I would send an acoustic guitar with a with you know a metronome or pre-recorded drums on it, and just say I want this one to sound like the Bunkies, but with a bit of this on it and a bit of that. And uh, nine times out of ten, he, come, he he gives me like options. He'll send me a few different guitar leads and things like that, and then I'll just kind of do a terrible mix on my own to get an idea of what it what I want it to sound like, and then I'll post it off to Gary, who who will do it properly. Um, and then Gary adds his own spin on on the mix yeah. as well. Um, so he's all over the like the way like Dear Claire, the opening track. He he was the one that decided to have a, a guitar solo instead of a chorus to begin with in, in that song. Yeah. Great, great, yeah. great intro. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, um, it's, uh, yeah. And, and sometimes I'll write just, you know, and, and, and Kyle is also like, he's an incredibly talented musician, but he's also very easy to work with. He's not a, he's not a music snob or anything. He's just, you know, I can just say, Oh, I want a quiet bit here. And then it gets louder. And then can the organ come in? You know, and I draw a little, you know, a spreadsheet or something, and, and he would just come up. And it, and also, I like collaborating. I'm always excited to hear what people do. Yeah, 
with my songs rather than me going, I want this, you know, I'm not like that. Because I, I can't play the instruments properly anyway. I play rhythm guitar, but, you know. It, uh, so I, when, it, when the things would come back as all these wave files and whatnot, and we put them together, it's, it's like Christmas for me. It's just exciting, you know, <laughs> to hear what's Kyle and Hampus done and what's Gary done. You know? And yeah, that, that's just a really good way, I think, if you're in a band, even though this is a solo thing, is, is you know, you've got to not be a control freak. You've really got to be kind of, this is an ensemble piece. <laughs> <laughs> so you recorded a very special live session for I, Look at My Records did. with Gary. Really uh-huh. excited to play this whole thing for everyone. Before we dive into it, just set it up for us a, a little bit before we play it for everyone. Right. So this is, we did this um, uh, at Gary's studio in Marlboro Farms in Brooklyn. And um, and it's Alex Curtin, who you might know from Cause Commotion. He plays bass. Kenny Wachtel plays lead guitar. Kyle plays keyboards on this. And, and Hampus plays drums. Um, and we just did it. Like, we banged them out, like, pretty quickly. <laughs> I think it's one or two takes for each one. Maybe just one take, I think, mostly. Because um, we wanted it to sound live as possible. And then, um, but session style, I, I redid my vocals, but I did one take. But this is what they do in Peel sessions. So, you know, so it was a lot of fun to record five songs. Like, it was like, hey, we're the Beatles. You know, <laughs> we're not as tight as the Beatles, maybe. But, you know, it's like, like kind of like we've just come from Hamburg because we played a house party in two shows. So we thought that that was like our Hamburg. And um, yeah, it was a lot of fun to do. Yeah, definitely. Nice. I think it came out came out nicely. It sounds really good, so I'm excited for everyone to hear it. You're gonna play five songs from the record Dear Claire, which we just talked about, Wired Eyes, which we also spoke about, uh, to say goodbye. In a long that's, t- that's a new track. That's amazing. That's a new track, yeah, yeah. That's not on the record, everyone. So uh-huh. make sure your ears perk up and listen to it. And then something good.
Thank you so much for sharing that incredible live session with us. Everyone, again, we heard four songs from Love Burns' brand new album. We heard Dear Claire, Wired Eyes, In a Long Time, and Something Good, and sandwiched in between those four tracks, smack in the middle, we heard a brand new song to say good. Bye. And again, everyone, you can get a copy of Love Burns' new LP. It should have been tomorrow via loveburns.bandcamp.com. All right, Phil, now you picked some records from my collection. We're going to talk about them. First up, you selected Set You Free This Time by The Birds off of their 1965 album, Turn, Turn. Turn. A classic, the, you know, forefathers, godfathers of the jangly guitar, I'd say. Absolutely. This is where it all originated. Yeah, so it's Gene Clark's song as well, and Gene's like a musical hero. And and the birds, I was obsessed with the birds. You know, a lot of indie kids were. Yeah. It was like, you know, Primal Scream and all the jangly C86 bands, and it was like, 
you know, we'd play them on a cassette at work, whatever crappy day job we had, and then, you know, some guy go, sounds like the birds. <laughs> and you go, we're like, who are the birds? And then you'd read interviews, and then we're like, oh, my God, there's this band from years ago that have done, like, ten superior versions of Sonic Flower Glove. You know, it's that kind of, you know, it's like, this is incredible, you know. That's- I mean, I was... <laughs> yeah, you know, and it, and it was like no, you know, nothing against, but you know, I, I think a lot of CH six bands were kind of some of them really do stand up still, I think, and but a lot of them were gateway bands, I think. But that's what music should be like, you know. I think a new band should have something new to say, but it should also, you know, inspire you to listen to other records too. It's so funny that you mentioned Sonic Flower Groove because I was just listening to that. <laughs> I'm this, being very this harsh. Morning. Uh, it's a bit harsh. My favorite pro- Primal Scream record, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know they're they're beloved. I was never a huge fan, but they they do have some. You know, their singles, the creation singles, are great. Yeah, Gentle Tuesday, yeah. especially. Yeah, yeah, and then you know yeah. they kind of got like you know different, and you know that's not okay. I really liked. Yeah. It's funny when I knew Ride, they were. Uh, as they were, I, I kind of knew them for a little bit while they were taken off, and then they kind of, you know, disappeared. Um, but I remember being in a car with the singer Mark, and uh, we were just listening to mixes from, um, um, oh my gosh, the big Primal Scream, the Breakthrough album. Uh, um, yeah, Screamadelica. Screamadelica. Yes. And it was just like, wow, this is amazing. And then I think it was like the Stone Roses and Oasis and Blur, you just every bar, every pub you went into, everybody's house party, you just hear this music over and over and over and over. Then it becomes part of the, you know, part of the background a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, being a an elitist obscurist, you know, <laughs> I'd be like, I've heard this. But, you know, <laughs> I'm sure if I was drunk and I was listening to Come Together, I'd be very happy. <laughs> it isn't how it was set up to be, but I've set you this time I have never been so far out in front that I could ever ask for what I want and have it time. Uh, next, Deluxe by Lush off of their Mad Love EP, which was originally released in 1990. Yeah, I was a big fan of, of Lush when they started. And this is before Shoegaze was a thing, because it was, I remember, you know, it was, obviously, we, we were being at, still at the art school and, and, and just having left the art school, I think. Um, the Shoegaze was... The bands that became to be called Shoegaze were by, you know, sarcastic music journalists were, were kind of taken off. And I remember Pale, Li- uh, Pale Lights, Pale Saints. Pale Saints, um, great, great uh, band, yeah. Pale Fountains. Um, no, um, but yeah, Pale Saints came out and they were really, really good. And, um, and, and Lush were kind of like, seemed to be tacked onto them a little bit. But I really like Lush a lot. And then they did that song Deluxe, which to me is a great kind of punky pop song. With, with a really good, you know, it's got that kind of shoegazy sound, but it, it's very strong melodically and the beat is very strong. So it, it's not like this kind of Mogadon sound. It's, you know, it's it's just really good. And she's and Mickey's got a great voice and, and her Twitter feed is hilarious. 
It is. Everyone follow her. How how someone who could be such a party monster, I don't know, manages to to, to have all this archive and memories. It's quite impressive. Yeah. But but yeah, I I, I still, you know, they they went on and became, you know, they, they, they became incredibly unfashionable. And then they became very fashionable again because, you know, they, they were getting more song-oriented, I guess. Uh, and then they kind of got lumped in with Britpop. Yeah. Which never, I don't think did anyone any favours. But, um, it, yeah, it, it was, no, so I've always had a soft spot for Lush. And, um, and I was trying to think of it, look, is there a shoegaze band that you, you know, you still like? Because I kind of, I find it easy because I went, went off shoegaze a lot with the second generation of the band. So I won't mention any, but I, I just, and then the second second in quotations my bloody valentine album i'm one of the few people that didn't like it very much i you know i loved isn't anything and me too that's my isn't anything is my uh, favorite one uh, that's so. just an incredible record and it, it doesn't for some reason they write the album after it gets all the gets all the acclaim but i just love that stuff and uh, but i liked you know very fond memories of rides first records and then um you know lush and the pale saints but i didn't really get into the so much of the stuff that came after that, which is still, you know, I won't name names, but it's very popular. Um, I forgot what my point was, but yeah, it was, it was, you know. It, so I kind of went off it, especially when the Riot Girl and Underground Pop thing came along. Shoegaze seemed to be just like very apolitical, but I was looking back and I was going, yeah, you know, you go through periods when you're young, you're stupid, and you have strong opinions about stuff that doesn't matter, um, or you did it back then. And um, I'm sure they're young and much more enlightened nowadays. And um, but, you know, I went back and reviewed some of those things. Going through your records was great because it's easy for me to go through my records because I would just pick the same. Yeah. You know, it will be Orange Juice, Aztec Camera, Felt, Go-Betweens, yeah. you know, McCarthy, whatever. But uh, I mean, I'm sure you've got that stuff in there as well. But it was kind of going, it's like going through someone else's records, which was fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, Lush, good band. Great band. Fond, fond memories. next band sneaky feelings you mm. pick the song someone else's eyes off of send you released originally by flying nun this is a band from dunedin new zealand released in 1983 and reissued by captured tracks more recently the brooklyn based yeah. label who's done a lot of work reissuing new zealand bands and even beyond new zealand kind of music within that vein that has that jangly guitar pop mm. sound yeah i i was like a lot of the flying nun stuff came along i wasn't hip enough to know the flying nun stuff because i you know i didn't live in london or anything so i i you know i was into when this stuff was coming out i was either too young or uh, you know i was into pop music or i was into the smiths and echo and the bony men and the cure and the order which was the, the law but there's the only records you could get by anything vaguely alternative in, in the market yeah. that i lived in so i got into flying nun after the event um in the late 80s um, and I think it was probably the chills I first heard, and I thought, oh, this is great. And then I, you know, then I had the Clean and the Valains and Sneaky Feelings. I didn't; they didn't seem to be the hit band on the label. They didn't get name dropped so much, um, so I didn't hear them for years. Um, and then I, I think the first time I really listened to them was the Captured Tracks reissue, yeah. which is kind of, kind of. And I was just like, this is great. You know, I loved this band because not all of their songs work. Sometimes they don't work. Sometimes. 
you know, I like I like the kind of sincerity in the songs. He, I feel like the lyricists lay it all out there. And I don't know enough about the individuals, but I feel like they take chances on songs from the heart that could uh, that could fall flat, which I think reflects, you know, life. Like when you sometimes you, you put put it all out there and, and it's a disaster. But um, but you but, put you know, it all out there. But you put you it know? out there, and 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 they have a really good ear for melody as well. And I, I love this song, and um, and most of the stuff I've heard, um, I haven't heard really the latest stuff. I've just heard the Flying Nun music. Um, but yeah, really, uh, for some reason people weren't. And I, I read the, the 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 Roger Thingy's Flying Nun book. I forget. You know, the, the, he wrote a biography of. Uh, history of flying nun and they seem to like come off of it slightly badly because they were uh, i don't know ambitious or something you know we're not allowed to be ambitious in the 80s and um but yeah i mean really worth checking out a really good underrated group i think incredible but flying nun i mean uh, indie kids know about flying nun and what a fantastic label would you come up now kind of circling back to like Fursey and stuff we got buffalo springfield flying in the ground is wrong off of their 1966 self-titled debut that album i mean it wasn't even that it was the retrospective compilation that um that was the first buffalo springfield i got i think i got a somebody used to hang around with this guy called jason king you know, who I've lost track with, and he was really into, he was a total 60s kid, and this was in, in a market town called Banbury, and he had like bird's hair, pointy boots, stripy <laughs> shirts, jean jackets, he was just really into the 60s, and yeah. uh, he used to make mixtapes for everybody, total music nut, and I remember Buffalo Springfield were on that, with a lot of other 60s groups I hadn't heard of, um, like the merry-go-round, and um, things like that, and um and so I used to listen to that Flying on the Ground is Wrong a lot. And then there was a cover of it by a group called Rainy Day that were associated with, a, you know, various people from the, uh, the Paisley Underground in the 80s. Yeah. Which is, I think, when the 60s started coming back. Coming back, yeah. And, and being hip again after all the kind of post-punk stuff. And, um, and but these mixtapes were always great. And so I, I think I didn't have much money, so I went out and bought a Best of you know, the best of Buffalo Springfield, which is what, what you know, proper music fans shouldn't do, apparently. But it, it's such a great compilation. I mean, it's just amazing. And um, I, I listen to it all the time, and I, I didn't really appreciate it. I wasn't really thinking, wait, why, Phil, you've had this record for years, and you always play it, you know, dig it out at least two or three times a year. And I was listening to it going, this is an incredibly good record. It's like, all of the songs on it are amazing. And... Um, so I had to put that on it just because it reminded me of, you know, my old friend Jason and um, and then, you know, all that kind of 60s into C86 kind of vibe that, that was very important. And the fact that it was just a, a group that I don't appreciate enough. And so seeing it in your records, it's like, oh, yeah, Buffalo Springfield, of course. I mean, it's an obvious choice for a lot of people. Turn me up or turn me Turn me round. I wish I could have met you in a place where we both belong. 
And then the zombies, this will be our year off of their, what I consider to be underappreciated, you know, I mean, it's their, their uh, magnum opus, I'd say, Odyssey and Oracle, released in 1968. I just got the Colin Blundstone reissue, which I haven't, I haven't had the chance to listen to yet. I mean, I've heard it before and I got really excited about that. And that, that kind of, so I was in a zombies frame of mind, but I haven't listened to them in a while, but yeah, Odyssey and Oracle, when I first heard it and when most people first hear it, if, if it's your kind of thing was, this is an incredible record, you know, um, you know, and they the obviously released it after they split up and everything, but it's, it's a wonderful, it's like, I, I always think there's, there's a lot like roots of indie pop yeah. is, 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 Things like the Zombies and Buffalo Springfield, and obviously even things like the Beatles, all that stuff, the jangly guitars, the game got distorted and and changed over the years because you know, like so, like shoegaze to me is indie is just still indie pop, but with effects pedals, you know that kind of thing. And um, but it's still that song based, guitar based kind of thing that but that doesn't lurch into you know machismo, yeah. Um, and and you know blustering cock rock. Uh, if I could say that online, <laughs> yeah. online. Um, you, can, you can beep that out. And uh, but yeah, I've always loved music that was you know I've always liked playing in groups that, that you know that have that aren't just all dudes. Although Love Burns has been mostly dudes, with the exception of Lisa who plays drums live sometimes. But um, but I've always been interested. In, I always think the best music is made by you know different genders yeah. it's not it, it, it just it just is because you know there's there's too much aggression in the world yeah it's a hippie <laughs> you know but but uh zombies is fantastic you know what a voice incredible and blundstone and this will be our year took a long time to come don't let go of my hand now the darkness has gone this will be our year took a long time to I won't forget the way you helped me up when I was done. And I won't forget the way you And then Look Blue, Go Purple, another New Zealand band. Oh, yeah. Cactus Cat, which appears on the Still Bewitched compilation, which was released by Capture Tracks in 2017. Right. Yeah. I, I inadvertently picked two flying non Capture Track records. Um. I love Cactus Cat because I like cats. You do um, love cats, yeah. I love the group because they're like, you know, you see the videos of them and they look like they're having so much fun. They're not trying to be hip, not trying to be cool. They're just writing great jangly songs. And that's the kind of thing I like about indie music as well. This kind of, you know, I don't imagine Luke Blue Go Purple thought we could become famous. It's yeah. just like, for me, it's like, it's punk rock, pure punk rock. Even though it doesn't sound like from people's definition of punk rock, it's that still DIY spirit that is what punk rock is all about for me. And that's why I can be inspired by a group like, you know, Bikini Kill. Um, even though I'm not exactly what you call a, a rocker. But it's just that get up on stage and do it thing. And, you know, that, that amateurishness, which just creates warped but brilliant music sometimes. And, um, yeah. And look, blue, look, blue, go purple. I just got fond memories of them because um, old housemates. They were, they were uh, the first house I lived in after I left my moved out of my parents. The, they were one of the, that was one of the records, one of the groups that everybody liked, and we played, you know, Cactus Cat a lot, and everyone would get drunk and sing along to it. Um, so fond memories. Of them. <laughs> 
good. And then last but not least, our mutual friend, the great Nicole Yoon. Her song, Supernatural Babe, off of her awesome 2019 solo debut, Paper Suit, which was released on K9 Records. Longtime fan of hers from her days in Eternal Summers. And this solo record is great. And I know she has some more solo tunes in the pipeline as well. Yeah, I I've, not, I've never met Nicole, but um, and I didn't know Eternal Summers, to be honest. Um because I spend all my money on on trying to make records, not on buying them so yeah. much. But I know Kevin Alvear, who's who's definitely a mutual friend. He he did the sleeve, and I kept saying I like to collect things by people I know and like, um, like the art they've made. And uh, so I bought that. I'm a big fan of his Kevin Alvear's comics. Yeah. And uh, and I think I heard Supernatural Babe on, uh, and I just thought, wow, that's you know, I assumed that had been in the charts or something. It just to me, it's kind of like. The, it just it's just it's a really good pop song really well written the whole album is great i really like it and i don't really like a lot of new stuff to be honest um you know because i'm rooted in in the old man music but um but i really like that album it's a really good record i should listen to some eternal summers obviously um but it kind of i chose it because i wanted to pick something new and also because i'm like it's a reminder there's so much music out there that doesn't get its dues you know um that doesn't get the credit it deserves. Because, you know, I was just like, this sounds like, why am I not seeing Nicole performing this on Saturday Night Live or, you know, on rotation on yeah. MTV or something? Because it's just a great song, a uh, great pop song. And um, that was the only reason I took it, because it's like this reminder that there's so much great music out there. Even when people go, oh, I don't really like new music like I just did. But it's, it's no, there's always something going on. She's great. And Kevin Alvear did do the album art for mm -hmm. this record. He, he also did the logo for Look at My Record. So thanks, Kevin right. Alvear. You're great. He did, a, he, he did a, a, a pale light sleeve for us. And what was the other thing? Oh, he put pale lights in one of his... In, in, uh, oh, I don't want to reveal it. Actually, I might get into trouble. But oh my he put gosh! Us in, a he put us in a work. He put us in a work of art that he's working on, which is very exciting. Beautiful. That's exciting. Can't wait to. He's see our it. Renaissance man. Yeah, he is. It's definitely. <laughs> He'll love this. He'll love me saying that. <laughs> Bill, sadly coming to the end of our interview. Thank you so much for Thank speaking you. with me. Everyone, Love Burns. It's the solo project of Bill. They just released their debut album. It's called It Should Have Been Tomorrow. It's available on vinyl via jigsaw records so you could get a copy uh, at jigsawrecords.bandcamp.com you could also go to loveburns.bandcamp.com where you could get it via digital download and you have all the links there for mm. where people can get it both in europe uh via the klein to grund a discogs page it looks like mm. also available on tape via austin town hall so loveburns.bandcamp.com. So Phil, 
what's coming up now for Love Burns now that the album is out? Um, not a lot. I'm working on new songs. Cool. Um, so I, I, I kind of uh, I got a single in the pipeline. I don't know who's going to release it yet. Um, bunch of new songs, uh, collaborations again. Um, we we are available um, for shows, weddings, house parties, anything. Get in touch because uh, I'm hoping to play some shows in the summer. We want to set some up. I want to set up like a mini indie pop thing with you know us, Janine's, or maybe Pale Lights, or you know, and Kevin, and you know, or, or a few others that we've wanted to play with since before COVID. But um, let's see if it happens. But but you know, I, I'm. Uh, it won't be a pop fest, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not up to that that level of, of organizing things. But <laughs> well, and then, if you need yeah. any help with that, let me know because Absolutely. I would love Absolutely. to, to yeah. help out with getting a Brooklyn, New York, whatever pop fest. Yeah, going. yeah. that would be insanely cool. I'm playing a, a little festival in Norway. Little, oh, that's amazing! Um, yeah, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, Very it's they're called Indiefjord. Um, so I'm, I'm supposed to be playing those. I'll probably get into trouble for saying that. But that's just going to be me and a couple of mates from the UK this time playing, uh, um, who actually played on the LP as well. So that should be fun too. Very exciting. Lots of cool stuff happening for Love Burns in 2022. Bill, thank you so much for speaking you, with Tom. me today. Thank you. We're going to play one more song from the LP, a track that we talked about earlier in our conversation, Drive Down to D.C. Been trying to tell you the truth about me. I'm not born again. I'm not so free. I miss you time.
Sit with my 